This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for December 14th, 2018. In this week's episode, we've got tips for setting up a new Mac. Plus, facial recognition software surveils Taylor Swift concert goers for stalkers. Google Plus will shut down earlier than originally expected because of a data breach. And the year's most popular passwords, not a list you want to be on. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Josh, do you remember Google Plus? <laughs> do I remember Google Plus? <laughs> well, Google Plus technically isn't gone yet. Well, it's gotten closer to being gone. Uh, Google announced that they were shutting down Google Plus in October, or as Google says, they announced that we would be sunsetting the consumer version of Google Plus because of significant changes involved in maintaining a successful product that meets consumers' expectations as well as the platform's low usage. Note that low usage. Yeah, so wait, is it successful or is it low usage? Yeah, so actually one of the reasons that they decided that they would be sunsetting Google Plus was that there was a huge security breach. That was th probably the real reason behind it. Well, plus low usage, I think, probably contributes to it. And so Google has decided that they're going to sunset Google Plus even sooner because... Dun, da, 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 there's another security problem, another privacy problem that caused people to be able to get private information from your profile that you were not sharing publicly, pretty much very similar to what happened last time. Yep. And this, this time there was a new change that was made in November, and that made it again, possible for people to theoretically be able to get private information from your profile. So Google found this, I think they said within a week, and they're just letting people know, you know, that there was this vulnerability. They don't know that anyone used it, but they said, because we've had this problem or similar problem again, we're just going to shut down Google Plus sooner than we had originally planned. Right. Originally, they were planning on shutting it down in August 2019, and now they've decided to shut it down in April 2019, so roughly 90 days from now. They say that it impacted 52.5 million users. Now, in some ways, it's hard to believe that there were 52.5 million users of Google Plus. Well, you know, again, it's it's one of those things that how are they counting those numbers? Because it, it, those could be 50 million inactive users who had to set up a profile at one point because they thought that Google Plus might take off and become the next Facebook or something. Um, so, you know, they're not saying they have 50 million active users. I think the standard metric they use for that sort of thing is users who use the platform at least once a month. So in a given month, this is how many people interacted with the platform. I know I've seen that in Regarding Twitter and Facebook, the monthly active user, I think, is the term that they use. Yeah. So presumably there were 52.5 million monthly active users. This doesn't include the millions and hundreds of millions of people who set up a Google Plus account once back in the day and realized that it was essentially useless and whose, whose profile and account was still there and who were just never looking. Right. Well, and I also seem to remember hearing that Google Plus's bounce rate was really high, meaning that like even these apparently active users were really only just, you know, maybe they got a notification 
And so they clicked on something, it opened Google Plus, and they're like, oh, okay, that's nothing I care about. And they closed it immediately <laughs> after a second or two. Yeah, the bounce rate is is people who don't stay very long. I, I must admit that I like like all of us, I set up a Google Plus profile when they launched it. Remember back when they had circles and you put your friends into circles and you drag them around? And I maintained it and I even kept a Google Plus sharing button on my website because I was afraid that if I didn't, Google would downrate me in search algorithms. So I probably never even should have bothered because after I don't know, after the first six months, I really never went back there. Yeah, well, and I guess Google's going to have to do things a little differently now because you can no longer use your search engine optimization to you know link your Google Plus profile and give yourself better ranking on Google. It was kind of, honestly, that was kind of a scammy thing. I don't know if I, scammy is the right word, but... In some ways, it was a sort of an antitrust violation that they were leveraging their power in search to try to get people to use this service and a lot of us bought into it because we figured that if we didn't use it, then we'd get penalized. Well, shoot. I mean, most people use Google, right, to search. So Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We kind of had to play the game, or we so we thought. So. Yeah. Okay. So we, we actually have a lot of interesting news this week about security. W one that really caught my eye today was a story about Taylor Swift in her recent concert. She's been using facial recognition software to detect stalkers at a concert. Apparently, Taylor Swift has hundreds of stalkers and that there is a database which is held in Nashville, Tennessee, of her stalkers. This, this sounds really interesting when you think about it. So they set up a sort of a kiosk where people could sign in and get selfies and get light-up bracelets and all that. And what the people weren't told was that there was a camera inside taking their pictures and cross-referencing these images with facial recognition software. This is pretty vile because... One of the things about all of these technologies is you have to tell users when you're doing this stuff. Right. And it's it's interesting, too, that they've sort of let this slip because now, well, they can't really use the same tactic again because now people are going to know better. Don't go buy the bracelets <laughs> or put on a, you know, one of those uh, masks or something to hide your identity like I, I wear constantly all the time. Yes, like you wear constantly, as I can see now in our Skype conversation. What's interesting, though, is that the article that we'll link to in the show notes in The Guardian talks about how the use of facial recognition software is rising at public events. Ticketmaster's invested in a startup that they say aims to move fans through entry points more efficiently and combat touting, which is ticket scalping. And apparently this is turning into a thing. Of course, here in Europe with GDPR, I don't know how they're going to do that. Yeah, right. I mean, you have to be more transparent with people. I mean, people, uh, e even if it's not technically against the law in whatever country, people are a lot more aware of and concerned about privacy now. And for you to be doing facial analytics and comparing them to a database, you know, just because they're buying your merchandise, they're spending money to support you. And you're doing this behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, I, I get the purpose of it, right? I mean, if it's for Taylor Swift's safety, well, you know, we want to make sure that she is safe, but... Yeah, but isn't that always the excuse? It's for, enter your favorite name here, safety. It, it's just gotten to the point that this security theater is not really for anyone's safety. It's just to make you think that you're being mm. safe. Food for thought. Uh, just on a side note, I went to the theater last night here in Stratford-upon-Avon, and for the first time, they're starting to make people check their bags. Now, for a while, they've been looking in bags. They have people, when you go into the theater with flashlights and you open your bag and they look, and now they're making you check bags. I, I always carry a small knapsack, and they said that was too big. 
but it always makes me think, okay, they're going to put the flashlight in the bag and they're going to look. If they don't see any bombs, then why do they need to check the bag? What's that going to change? You know, bag checks have always been something that I've I've been skeptical of. It's been years since I've been to Disneyland, but um, I, I know that they've had a history of checking people's bags, you know, when they check into the park. And honestly, some of the bag checks that they do are literally nothing more than taking a quick peek in the top of the main the main compartment and and that's it yeah so my, my knapsack has a front thing that zips as well which is big enough to put you know anything in almost you know big enough to put like six sandwiches in it's that big they don't make me open that they don't make me open the little zipper on the top and they don't even look that close i i've never understood that sort of security it's i've heard that in some sports stadiums in the u.s they won't let you bring your own beer or alcohol in so the bag check in that case can make sense but if all they're doing is looking and then letting people go by, I don't understand. And of course, then there's always the thing that us guys, we may have a small knapsack and they want us to check it. But a woman with a big purse, they're never going to ask her to check the purse. Well, here's a sort of obvious secret, I guess. <laughs> if all they're doing is looking and they're not feeling around in there, you could easily have sort of a hidden compartment at the bottom of your bag. So they reach in, they don't feel anything or they don't see anything. And you've actually got whatever you're not supposed to be bringing in underneath, you know, in this little hidden compartment. It would be super easy to do that. And it's not like it takes a genius to think of something like that. I mean, that's sort of obvious. Well, even you thought of it, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> we need a drum roll there. boom. Okay. Facial recognition is definitely in the news. And the ACLU has an article about Amazon's disturbing plan to add face surveillance to your front door. Now, earlier this year, we talked about Amazon's doorbell system, where you buy Amazon's doorbell and you can allow Amazon's delivery people to enter your house and they're videoed when they go in and all this. And we didn't really like it at the time. But now they're talking about a system that the police can use to match the faces of people walking by a doorbell camera with a photo database of persons they deem suspicious. So this is with the, the Ring doorbell. I'm not sure if that uh, if so Amazon owns Ring. Right. But I'm not sure whether Ring has that other functionality that that we were talking about earlier in, in the year. But these this is another front door security product that is owned by Amazon. I actually have a Ring doorbell. What? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I bought one before it was owned by Amazon. Ah, okay. But um, I mean, it's just kind of a, you know, theoretically, if it works right, I just want to make it clear I'm not endorsing the product <laughs> because we have a lot of problems with ours. But if it works right, the idea is kind of it's kind of clever because you theoretically can see people at your doorstep when you're far away. So if nobody's home but someone's delivering a package and someone presses the doorbell, um, you get an alert on your phone and you can see that someone is delivering a package and you can even talk to them. You can see them and you can talk to them. They can't see you, but they can hear your voice and you can tell them, oh, just make sure to, you know, just leave it behind the bush over there. I'll pick it up later. Right. Um, that's that's kind of the main thing behind the ring doorbell. And the concept isn't new. I lived in an apartment building in New York in the 1980s that had a camera by the doorbells and that we had a little screen in each apartment and you'd talk to the person on the intercom. The difference here is that you don't have to be in your house to have that interaction. I'll bet Taylor Swift is going to buy some of these. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot of similarities between this story and the Taylor Swift one, where basically 
you know, Amazon supposedly wants to be able to have people walk up to your door who might be in a database, you know, as being a suspicious person or a potential package stealer or whatever they might be or a scam artist and automatically call the police on these people just because they're walking up to your door. Wait, let's just make one thing clear. This is a patent. This isn't yet an Amazon product. Yeah. And many times companies register patents in order to prevent other companies from manufacturing a product. But the fact that they've come up with this idea, this is like this is like a, a 1980s science fiction dystopian thing. The, the idea that someone's always watching you, they know what you're doing, <laughs> you can't get away. Okay, so in other news, and, and we, we scratched our heads over this one to try and really figure out what it meant. Sennheiser is a company that's well-known for their high-end audio headphones. They also make industrial headphones, being the kind of headphones that people use in call centers that are wired or wireless. And it turns out that there was a vulnerability found with the software that you use to set up certain of their headsets, not headphones for music, but headsets for making phone calls over a computer. But it's not really clear what was going on. Josh, try and explain this in two minutes. So what what, what they're saying is that there's the software that goes with these Sennheiser you know, headphone products. And what the software is supposed to do is to establish a secure connection between your computer and your headset. Apparently, they're, they're using some public key encryption technology. So we've, we've talked, I think, briefly about that before. The idea is that there's a public key, which anyone can have, and uh, then there's a private key, which only the manufacturer is supposed to have access to. And that's what's used to actually do the encryption. So you don't want anybody to have the private key because then they can pretend to be that company. And that's essentially what happened here. And if someone has the private key, they could be on a computer in the office next to yours and listen into your phone call. The point of this encryption is to make sure that the, the data that goes wirelessly over Bluetooth between the headset and your computer can't be detected by someone else. Right. So the issue here was there was an implementation flaw that basically made it possible for other people to hijack that signing key, that private key, and spoof you know websites. Um, they gave an example screenshot where they showed a Google homepage that was actually being loaded from that user's computer. So it could have been used by some malicious software that was running on your computer to pretend to be Google in order to get you to type in a password or things like that. Right. So this certificate vulnerability meant not just that potentially someone could listen in on your headphones, but they could do other things on the computer itself. Exactly. So it's kind of a, kind of a clever um, uh, thing that the security company found this but also kind of a boneheaded thing on Sennheiser's part the, that they had such a severe flaw. Sennheiser's not a small company. They're a huge company. And, and as I said, we know of them because of their high-end audio headphones. They make microphones. But their biggest business is really this office headset and speakerphone and, you know, call centers around the world. They all use wired or wireless headsets. And they sell probably a thousand times more headsets like that than they do sell audio headphones. Okay, we're going to take a break. First, I'd like to announce the November Intego Podcast survey winner. It's Dan D. from New York, New York, a town so nice they named it twice. Congratulations, Dan. We'll be sending you a Visa gift card. And for anyone who hasn't entered our survey, go to intego.com slash blog, and you'll find the link in all the posts about our podcast episodes.
If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Indigo's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software. That includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, before we get into our main topic, one more bit of news. In the show notes, I'll link to an article from Gizmodo called The 25 Most Popular Passwords of 2018 Will Make You Feel Like a Security Genius. Every year we see this, and it, it's kind of funny when we look at these passwords and, well, here they're ranked, and you can see which ones have gone up and gone down in the ranking. And, you know, the most popular password in the world is 123456, followed by password. In sixth place with a bullet, new on this year's list, is 111111. <laughs> I guess they got that from Kanye West. Right. That was the one that he used. Was it all ones or all zeros? Or did he use six nines when he was in Trump's office that time? Number 14 is six, 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 six. I sense a trend there. Number 11 is princess. And that is new. Now, there are some really clever people because number 19 is new. It is six, five, four, three, two, one. That's now that's really changing it up. That, that's got to be more secure, right? Because nobody would ever think to type a sequence of numbers backwards. Indeed. Imagine like two, four, six, eight, zero. Well, then you'd run out of you need six of them. So that wouldn't work. There is some maybe some good news, sort of um, monkey, which, you know, people have been making fun of monkey as a password for many years. That's down five slots this year. So fewer people are using monkey now. And football is down seven slots, which I guess shows the lack of popularity in football. But we have to remember that football is an international sport outside of the U.S. It's soccer. The source for all of this information on what the most popular passwords are is usually password breaches or data dumps. You know, somebody gets a hold of a whole bunch of passwords. Uh, you know, maybe some website is not encrypting the passwords correctly or hashing them like they should be. So their website gets compromised. And now all of those passwords for every user in their database are now known to the public. I must admit that there's one that I find extremely clever. It is exclamation point at hash dollar sign percentage carrot ampersand asterisks. And that's clever because that's the number keys on the top of your keyboard when you press the shift key down. So it's basically the symbol equivalent of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Right. Except you're just holding the shift key. So that's got to be more secure, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and number 23 and new, and this is a big surprise, is Donald, all in lowercase. Yeah. Oh, Donald. But there must be a lot of Donald Duck fans out there. That's got to be it. Okay, so our main topic this week is what do you do when you get a new Mac? How do you set it up? 
This is a question that we often get from people who are getting new Macs who haven't had one in years, and particularly one that's not had a recent operating system, or people who switch from Windows, or people who buy their first computer. There are a number of things you need to consider. What do you do, Josh? What's the first thing you do with a new Mac? Probably one of the first things that I do typically is install the software that I use the most. I don't really like using Safari, and so I'll typically install... I'm a geek, so I actually don't normally use the regular version of Chrome or the regular version of Firefox. You don't use the regular version of anything. (laughs) One of the first things I usually install is Chrome Canary, which is sort of like the bleeding-edge developer preview version. And then I actually use a Firefox fork called Waterfox because I really liked uh, some of the old style extensions, which Firefox official doesn't let you use anymore. And so Waterfox is a fork that lets you continue using your old extensions. Okay. I'm going to go a step back because what I do when I get a new Mac is I first load a clone that I've made of my previous Mac because I've got this Mac and everything set up the way I want with all my apps and all my settings. So what I do is I clone my hard drive. Clone is when you make a copy with backup software like Intego Personal Backup onto an external hard drive in such a way that you can start your Mac up from that external hard drive. If you ever need to do that, start up your Mac, press the option key and the screen will show whichever disks you have available to start up. So I clone my existing Mac, then I turn on the new Mac, hold down the option key, boot from the clone, and then use the software to copy the clone to the new Mac. So I'm making an actual mirror image of my old Mac to my new Mac. So I don't even have to install any software. Apple's migration assistant has always caused problems for me. So that's the tool that you can use if you've connected two Macs, say with an ethernet cable or a Thunderbolt cable now. And it will look on the old Mac and pull over your home folder and pull over your application and settings. But there are too many things that don't get copied. So the first thing I do is I just load a clone. And in that case, there's actually not much else that I do with a new Mac. And of course, I'm sure some of our listeners will also be familiar with the fact that you can use Time Machine for this. Again, theoretically, it doesn't always work. there, There are some conditions in order to get Time Machine backups to restore properly. But that's also another potential option if you can get it working right. So if I do set up a new Mac from scratch, and I have done this a few times, I'm going to link in the show notes to an article, setting up a new Mac, should you migrate or do a clean installation? Because every few Macs, I like to do a clean installation. Instead of doing that clone and carrying over all sorts of files and maybe old preference files and old caches from apps that I don't use anymore, sometimes I will do a clean installation. And in that case, I do like you. I start installing the software that I need to use. And for me, the first two apps that I install are LaunchBar and 1Password. Now, LaunchBar is an app that you use essentially to launch apps, but it can do a lot more than that. It can navigate. You can move files with it and all. But for me, it's for launching apps. Um, You can do this with Spotlight. If you press command space and you type SAF, Safari is going to show up. Um, But I just, I've been using LaunchBar since forever. and And I find that it works better than Spotlight for this sort of thing. And the reason I install this is because my next step on this new Mac is going to be launching certain apps. And I don't want to have to go rooting around in the applications folder. You know, I should probably install that app as well, because I have a tendency to launch apps through Spotlight Search. And among other things, one of the biggest frustrations that I have with Spotlight is that you are about to click on something in the results, and then all of a sudden, 
it changes position in the results, and now you just clicked on the wrong thing. That happens to me all the time with Spotlight results. And, and what I like about LaunchBar is it learns which abbreviations you use. So let's say I just want to type SF to get Safari. It's going to remember that after a few times, or you can actually manually set a specific abbreviation. You could set XYZ for Safari if that makes you happy. With Spotlight, it doesn't learn from what you do, and it's always going to make that same mistake. And, and the delay that you're talking about there is interesting because Spotlight now searches on the web. So it takes time to download information from the web. And that's why you'll start seeing some results. And then after a few seconds, it's going to change and move around. And, and it is kind of annoying. So the second thing I install, I said, is 1Password. And, and we've mentioned password managers over and over on the show. And, and there are others. There's LastPass and Dashlane, which are all very good and all integrated into macOS and iOS. I use 1Password, and the reason for that is if I'm installing a new Mac, I need to have my license codes for all of my software. And in addition to passwords, 1Password stores my license codes. They have a, a category of items you can store, which is software licenses. But also, I will need my passwords to be able to log into websites, set up accounts with some apps that need you to log into to a web service. So I really can't go very far without 1Password. A corollary to 1Password is Dropbox because my 1Password database is stored on Dropbox, so I need access to it. So Dropbox is installed right after that, and that enables me to get all of my information, any anything that I need to launch apps and log into websites. Right. Those are some really, really good apps. Um, you also have one more um, on your list here that I think is really cool, um, iStat Menus. And that one basically gives you a lot of detailed information about what's going on behind the scenes on your computer. So this is something that probably appeals a little bit more to the to the geek. <laughs> but um, if you want to see how much space is left on your drive, if you want to see what process is running in the background or taking up the most of, of your, your processing cycles and things like that, or using the most RAM, this is a good utility for finding those sort of things out. Yeah. So this is something that displays information in the menu bar. Some of what it displays is duplicates, but is better than Apple's version. For example, the battery menu extra is is better on a laptop than Apple's version because it can tell you the amount of time it takes to fully charge and the amount of time left on the battery that Apple no longer informs you. I use their date menu extra because you can add the time in different cities. It's like a world clock thing. And it shows a calendar when you click on it, so you can see what your next events are. I also use the network throughput, so I can see how much data is going in and out, which if my internet is slow, it's worth checking that to see if it's my browser that's not working quickly or if it's the data is not coming in. I use one that shows memory, and I use one that shows the CPU, because sometimes if your computer gets sluggish, it's because all your CPU is being used. And at a glance, I can see the four cores on my IMAX processor in the menu bar. And if they're all peaking in red, then I know something's going on. I can click on that to see which process is using all the CPU. One of the other things I think is important for us to mention is that one of the first things that you should do is, regardless of whether you're doing a migration or whether you're setting up a new Mac from scratch, is you'll want to make sure that you install updates because there are likely already operating system updates available between the time that you know Apple put that Mac in a box and when you turn on that Mac for the first time. So you want to make sure you get the software updated as quickly as possible because some of those updates might include security fixes. 
In fact, just last week, Apple released several new security updates for basically all of their operating systems and, and several other products. And so if you just bought a Mac a week ago and you turned it on for the first time on you know Friday or Saturday of this past week, then you had a whole bunch of updates already to be installed. Even if you've got a new Mac that has just been released, generally, since the version of the software that's on the Mac and the time you got it, there's a software update. Usually about a week after they release a major version like Mojave or High Sierra, whatever it is, they come out with an update to fix minor bugs. And that's a good time to do it. Now, those aren't usually major security fixes that come out at that time, but still there could be issues that might be problematic for you. I'm pretty sure that when the MacBook Pro with the touch bar came out, there was a touch bar issue like right away and that a week after they released it, there was a security update. The last time I bought a new Mac was a refurb MacBook Pro, and it was a couple of revs out of date on Mac OS. So there were major updates for that because you don't know how long something's been in the channel when it's been in the box like that. We'll link to another article on the Intego Mac security blog, which is called How to Securely Set Up Your New Mac. It's a little bit old, so you'll see the screenshots are different from what we see today on a Mac, but it gives you a bunch of useful ideas such as downloading software updates, which we just mentioned, installing security software like Intego Mac Premium Bundle X9, creating a time machine backup. It's a good idea to do this right away because that prevents you from having a problem. I can remember times when I've set up a new Mac and something went wrong early on and I had to erase it and restart. Setting up your Apple ID and iCloud, there are a number of things that you can do that will make your Mac more secure. Okay, so it's the holiday season, and if you have gotten a new Mac, check out some of the articles in the show notes. And until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software intigo.com